Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. Welcome to our third anniversary special. First, I'd like to say a huge thank you to all of you for listening over the last three years. This show is for all of you. Next, a huge thank you to everyone who has emailed me or left me a review on iTunes. It shows you really care about the show and the subject. Also, a huge thank you to the many podcasters out there who've been friends of this show. The Australian Histories podcast, Flashpoint History, Pontifacts, History of Aotearoa, History of France, History A, Cult of Domesticity, Feminists Without Mystique, History of Germany, The British History Podcast, Totalis Rankum, The American History Podcast, the Can't Make This Up podcast, Pax Britannica, and many, many others. A mega thank you goes to all my patrons on Patreon. I want this show to stay ad-free and independent. Supporters and lovers of this show can go to Patreon and choose from a range of subscriptions. This show consumes huge amounts of books, journals, articles, and also has the cost of hosting the episodes, maintaining the website, and so on. Any support is extremely gratefully received, and allows me to keep the wheels on the wagon. This in turn keeps the show ad-free and independent. Patrons, sign up to one of the monthly tiers. You can be a chimney sweep for $3 a month, a respectable governess for $5, a ho-ho toff, for $10, and if you pledge the top tier of $20 a month, you are elevated to the rank of John Brown, trusty servant of Her Majesty. All patrons will get their names entered into the handwritten journal to go on the website. All patrons get a mention on the show and various other rewards depending on the tier. Supporting is easy. Just go to patreon.com and search for the Age of Victoria podcast, or go to the Age of Victoria podcast website and hit the Patreon button, or click the link in the show, <coughs> or click the link in the show notes. Just to note that to get the fullest benefit from this episode, I recommend checking the art and music that I mention. I've added links to it on the website. I'll try and call out the appropriate points to go to the ageofvictoriapodcast.com website as we go on through. In the last year, the show has grown in leaps and bounds. We've got more listeners than ever. I've enjoyed chatting with listeners so much as we've covered Victoria's final crisis in her childhood and her accession to the throne, a deep dive into UK politics in the 1830s and 1840s, and then the Industrial Revolution, the railways, and the Great Victorian Plague, cholera. There's one figure who's noticeable by his absence. His name has popped up occasionally in politics, in the Christmas shows, but we've really missed him. It is time for him to step into the show properly. Because where would Victoria be 
without Albert. So for today's special, we're going to have a love story. My show is safe for work and people of all ages, but I've had to mention some adult themes like genocide. Today we will have some sexual references, so if you normally listen with the kids, maybe just hit fast forward in places. Still, this is PG, not X-rated. A quick note on terminology too. I'm going to be using the word romantic today in multiple senses. One way it is used is in the modern form of love and romance, i.e. a romantic gesture. But in the 19th century, the romantic, especially the German romantic, was a philosophical, literary and artistic movement that emphasised not just love, but passion, emotion. The natural world, in a call of the wild sense, and it often contained elements of older medieval imagings and a more mystical past. It exulted in passion, melancholy, despair, tragedy, the remote and the common man. It was incredibly influential to climb the windswept hill and look across the blasted trees on the edge of the bleak moors as the rain swept in was as much a part of the Romantic movement as creating poetry in the older styles of Thomas Mallory and painting a lady pining in her bower for a departing knight. The English Romantic emphasised the importance of the subjective and the feelings of an individual over intellect. The very definitions of the Romantic and Romanticism can be a battleground for philosophers, artists and historians. Traditions varied between countries and individuals, so it is a slippery thing to get to grips with. It could range from the whimsy of Wordsworth clouds to the agony of Le Desperier, painted by Gustave Courbet, to capture his battle with depression. A painting of striking impact that seems almost photographic. I've put it up on the Age of Victoria website. Just go to the art section and look at the romantic subheader. Yet the movement produced the amazing Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog by the German Caspar David Friedrich, a painting that almost everyone immediately recognises, but never knows what it is called or who painted it. A German romantic work of genre-defining brilliance, a long, tall man in a dark green coat is seen alone from behind a top of rock, surrounded by mist and fog that conceals nearly everything. In the distance rises a ruined keep and a mountain peak. If you want to understand Victoria, Albert and the early Victorian age, you need to look not just at their technologies and their empire, but into the great cultural movements of Romanticism and the reactions against it. 
to not merely retreat to nature, but to exult in it, to experience the sublime and intensity of feeling both love and despair. It is a tradition that includes Beethoven, Wagner, Liszt, Turner, Constable, and the supreme artist Thomas Cole, herald of the distinctive American Romanticism. To even define it is to look at inherent contradictions. Tolkien captured the contradictions at the heart of Romanticism in a passage in Lord of the Rings when Gladriel is offered the wrong ring. Quote, And now it comes at last. You will give me the ring freely. In place of the Dark Lord you will set up a queen, and I shall not be dark, but beautiful and terrible as the morning and the night, fair as the sea and the sun and the snow upon the mountain, dreadful as the storm and the lightning. Stronger than the foundations of the earth, all shall love me and despair. End quote. That's a very romantic style of speech and sentiment. The impossible juxtapositions, wrapping up of love and pain. Tolkien was perhaps the greatest flowering of Romanticism in 20th century literature but he was drawing on the foundations laid in the 19th century, as well as his knowledge of Norse mythology, itself often filtered through the Victorian prism. This movement and the traditions in it were an essential counterweight to the pure intellectualism and scientism, giving rise to framings of British and American culture balanced against other cultures they encountered, often with deadly consequences for the other culture in question. If Darwin gave the pure scientific data, then Romanticism gave the expression of nature as read in Tooth and Claw in a poem written by Tennyson years before Darwin published his work. A fusion of the two could be used to justify cultural imperialism and physical conquest in the later Victorian era, but it could also be used to push a more harmonious and humanitarian life that revered nature. Romanticism could have many forms and can justly claim to be a continuation of the Enlightenment by its own children who sought to water down the harshness of the Enlightenment claim that reason and critical analysis were the primary goals of life, intellectualism and art. The Romantics were more than just people who wanted to put feelings above reason. Rather, they felt it was through aesthetics and feeling blended with reason that one achieved the supreme knowledge of the self. You can see today is my anniversary treat to myself, as I've already started raving about art. I get to introduce now one of the key figures, a giant of the Victorian age, and a man whose name is known worldwide. His name is famous not merely as the man who married 
one of the most famous monarchs in British history, but as a Victorian of immense talent and achievement. His name graces museums, galleries, roads and pubs. There's probably not a person in the British Isles hasn't at least walked past a pub with his name. Yes, it is time to meet the other half of the royal power couple, the early Victorian period, Prince Franz Auguste Carl Albert Emmanuel, known to you and me as Prince Albert. He should actually have appeared at a key point in our story already, since Victoria met him before she became Queen but I couldn't have him appear in the wings once and then not pop up again for a year. So today we are going to have a love story, a proper one. Not one of my bait-and-switch style stories where you think you are having Christmas dinner end up in the Old West. Nope, this is a real love story. Because when you strip away the royal pantomime, the quarrels, the dynastic implications, and the diplomacies, Victoria and Albert fell in love and got married. One of the most magical things about being a monarch is that people really, really want to know about your love life. Are you seeing anyone? Does that handsome duke you were dancing with have an army that could be useful? Does the elderly count have a claim on the Holy Roman Empire? and the throne of Spain. Does that beautiful girl come with a large load of cash and a family history of lots of babies? Is a 20-year age gap going to be a problem? Or can the king in question be expected to perform sufficiently, at least once, before he needs to have a lie-down and a glass of restorative brandy before going off hunting for six weeks with that good-looking groom of his? Would the Queen's uncle kindly hand over the island, he promised as part of the marriage agreement, and not force the government to send a fleet to remind him of the marriage treaty obligations? Or perhaps worst of all, the King and Queen in question just isn't into the idea of marriage and babies, and only wants to enjoy the booze, food, and collecting taxes. Perhaps a small civil war will be required, with an exciting bonus round of purging the dynastic losers. After all, who doesn't love royal gossip, scandal and sex? If this was a documentary, at this point someone would scratch the needle on a gramophone. Victoria most certainly did not like scandal, nor was she keen on being a broodmare. Her childhood had been complicated enough, but when we left her, she was settled happily on the throne. Unfortunately, being queen isn't easy. There are a lot of complicated constitutional arrangements around being the monarch in the UK. Salic law had already disbarred Victoria from becoming queen of Hanover like her predecessors William IV and George IV. The constitution of the UK was rather chaotic, as you might remember from episodes 21 to 23. 
she also had to deal with the enormous sexism of the early 19th century. She was a woman and so subordinate to men. But in terms of social class, she was queen and thus socially superior to everyone. As queen, she was also governor of the Church of England and therefore spiritually head of religion. That religion was inherently patriarchal. We've not done religion and I'm not going to do it in detail here, but it is worth remembering that Christianity, especially Victorian Christianity, was built on the Old Testament story of Genesis, Adam and Eve, and the doctrine of original sin. More modern Christianity tends to ignore or gloss over this. Still, the King James Bible was pretty clear on the role of women. For example, Genesis 3.16 To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. 1 Corinthians 11.3 But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Or Timothy 1.2.11-15 Let a woman learn quietly, with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the core book of the Christian church in England. The church, Victoria, was now officially head of. By definition, she wasn't allowed to be if she and society followed these explicit injunctions. In fact, if she followed the strict wording of Timothy, there shouldn't even be a queen. Yet here she was. Just be a bit careful about thinking about those quotes on their own, as if they set out the whole Christian teaching about husbands and wives. There's a huge amount in the Bible about relationships and respect and things, and I'm not a qualified theologian, but it does show the tension that Victoria identified and had to overcome in her early marriage. It sounds really simple to say, but for royal couples falling in love and getting married has historically not been a common event. Henry VIII is notorious for his treatment of his poor wives, especially the talented and loyal Catherine of Aragon. Queen Mary Tudor was essentially abandoned by her husband, King Philip of Spain. Elizabeth I never married. None of the Hanoverians had especially happy marriages, except perhaps William IV. If you remember the earlier episodes of Queen Victoria's childhood, 
you know that George IV hated his wife more than he hated Napoleon Bonaparte, despite Napoleon supposedly being his mortal enemy. When Napoleon died, an aide taking the king the news said, Sire, your worst enemy is dead. And King George IV replied, Is she by God? Remember how he learnt the news of his estranged wife's death and went on a drinking binge of epic proportions to celebrate? Strictly speaking, though, love wasn't necessary for a royal marriage. Marriage at the top of the nobility was much more about dynastic ties, land, money, and producing children as heirs, especially male heirs. If the couple liked each other, that was a happy bonus. Even if they couldn't really stand each other, all they had to do was have sex on the wedding night and often enough thereafter to produce a male heir or two. Then go back to cordially hating each other and spending time with household knights or ladies-in-waiting. Sometimes it went really wrong. And at certain key points of the Wars of the Roses, wives and husbands fighting each other in battles and sieges was not unknown. Sex with someone you dislike intensely can be extremely unpleasant, and don't assume it was all on the female side. Some of the men might have hated it and their partners just as much, and it is clear that a good number of people forced into dynastic marriages were gay or lesbian, adding to the awfulness. That said, some Victorian marriages worked well where both partners were gay. The man and the woman in question then had the cover of an outwardly respectable marriage, but behind the privacy of closed doors or in discreet clubs, they could be themselves. I'm saying this to remind you just how lucky Victoria and Albert were to be in love and decide to get married. Incredibly lucky. After all, a lot of people in the modern world either never meet someone to love or, more realistically, find out that most marriages are ultimately doomed to bitterness and loneliness. That's to say nothing of the large number of people who have little to no interest in relationships, marriage, sex or various other things. Supposing Victoria had been asexual, or preferred not to have relationships. As queen, she was expected to marry and produce an heir. If that wasn't what she wanted in life, then a succession crisis would have been on the cards. Everyone in British politics took this extremely seriously. Even at the age of 15, before she became queen, People were already talking about Victoria and marriage. As far back as her early childhood, it was suggested she could marry the Duke of Cumberland's son. But apart from being pretty closely related, they couldn't stand each other. A suggestion of a long engagement in 1828 to the Duke de Orleans was ruled out as he was Catholic and no one wanted that historical rerun from Tudor times. By the time she was 17, people knew 
that the odds of Victoria being queen without needing a regency were extremely high, despite the best efforts of her controlling mother and the increasingly vicious adviser, Sir John Conroy. King William IV was clinging to life to get Victoria over the line of her 18th birthday and on to the throne. He favoured marriage to the House of Orange to strengthen ties to the Dutch. On the other side of the fence was Uncle Leopold, who wanted an alliance to Saxe-Coburg and stronger relations with the German states. Uncle Leopold had become King of Belgium in 1830, but he was originally from Saxe-Coburg, like Albert, and wanted to see him settled in a good marriage. The future British Queen would be perfect, and improve Belgium's links to the rising British superpower. He was supported by the Duchess of Kent, who wanted her Saxe-Coburg family tied more firmly into the British establishment, although the preferred option remained Mummy and Sir John Conroy pulling the strings behind the scenes or the Long Regency. The question was, who might be the bookie's favourite? Victoria disliked the two Dutch-Orange candidates pretty intensely. King William was dead set against the two candidates from Saxe-Coburg and unsuccessfully tried to prevent them arriving in England. On the 18th of May, 1836, Victoria was presented to her uncle Ernest, the Duke of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, along with his two sons, Ernest and Albert. She wrote in her diary that night, quote, Ernest is as tall as Ferdinand and Augustus, the two Dutch princes. He has dark hair and fine dark eyebrows, but the nose and mouth are not very good. Albert, who is just as tall as Ernest, but stouter, is extremely handsome. His hair is about the same colour as mine. His eyes are large and blue, and he has a beautiful nose, and a very sweet mouth with fine teeth. But the charm of his countenance is in his expression, which is more delightful. Cest à la fois, full of goodness and sweetness, and very clever and intelligent. End quote. That's not a bad first impression to make. Albert even managed to impress King William when they finally met. A relief to Victoria, who had been dreading the meeting. Albert had had a terrible trip to England, including dreadful seasickness, on a stormy voyage, and he wasn't at his best. But it was good enough for now. Victoria wrote to Uncle Leopold about the visit saying, quote, They are both very kind, amiable and good. Albert is very handsome, but he has a most good-natured countenance. I thank you, my beloved uncle, for the prospect of great happiness you have contributed to give to me in the person of dear Albert. Allow me then, my dearest uncle, to tell you how delighted I am with him and how much I liked him in every way. He possesses every quality 
that could be desired, to render me perfectly happy. He is so sensible, so kind, so good, and so amiable, too. He has, besides, the most pleasing and delightful exterior and appearance you could see. End quote. But, for all the positive language, unsurprisingly, they weren't talking marriage at this point. Imagine the person you were at 17, and having to decide whether to get married. Think of how staggeringly immature you are at that age, especially as you just don't realise it. Now, add on top of that the fact that Victoria's choices would shape the future of the nation, and that 17-year-olds are still learning who they are and who they might want to be. 17-year-old Victoria was a very different girl from the grown-up queen, the married mother, or the grand old imperial widow. She was in love with music, dance, and late nights. Her idea of a good time at 17 was an all-night dance, and then rolling into bed at dawn. If she had lived in the late 90s, like 17-year-old me, she would certainly have been clubbing and probably raving at festivals. Albert, at any age and in any time period, would not. I'll admit at this point, I actually rather like Albert, and as we go on in future shows with him, I think you will too, or at least respect his sincere dedication to making people's lives better, using his intellect and hard work. He believed he lived to serve the people of Britain, and he meant it. Still, like everyone, he was human, with his own quirks and interests and limitations. One notable feature of Albert was that he was always an early riser, and he fell asleep early, too. If forced to stay up late, he became difficult, and was known to sneak off and sleep in a quiet corner. There are occasions where Victoria had to wake him up during a meal. His schedule was just completely different to Victoria's biologically. He preferred reading to sessions drinking and sleeping with prostitutes, despite his father's efforts to drag him round some of the best brothels in Berlin. He was regarded as intellectual, but possibly too stuffy. That's not fair, though, and the modern cliché of him as a boring, uptight, stuffy and emotionless man, is simply wrong. He could dance when he chose to, and he shared some passions with Victoria. A burning love of music and art, he was known to be a talented singer, composer, organ writer, and quite good amateur painter. In other words, he had a creative, musical and artistic side to him that was perfect for Victoria. He was also good at natural sciences and languages. This fits very well with the Enlightenment, followed by scientific rationality, but blended with the German and even English Romantic movements. Victoria became Queen of England, Ireland, Wales and Scotland, Defender of the Faith, etc., etc., in 1837. All around Europe, powerful people gathered in studies 
and talked in the grounds of country estates, the Queen of England and Scotland, Ireland and Wales was only 18 and single. The race to woo her was on. The prize was perhaps the crown of the United Kingdom and control of the empire. British politicians were wrapped up in managing the regime change plus the stormy decade of the 1830s. It wasn't just European nobility that was interested in the Queen. Unfortunately, she was bombarded with letters from desperate or completely deranged British men. One, Captain John Good, was a stalker, convinced he was destined to marry Victoria. Since she'd never met him, and he was a lowly captain, this was completely insane. Also, his opening chat-up line was memorable, but perhaps not the most seductive start, as he yelled at her, quote, You are a usurper. I will yet have you off the throne, end quote. He then declared himself John II, rightful King of England. He followed her wherever he could, throwing himself at her, when she got out of the carriage on tours, attempting to trick away or break into Kensington Palace, he was repeatedly arrested, and the authorities' patience finally snapped. On his final arrest, he was charged with treason, and his awful chat-up line was used against him as a treasonous statement. That and his threats in court to disembowel the whole royal family. The court case was pretty interesting in its own way. Good refused to enter a plea, at which point there was an unprompted intervention from the Attorney General on the bench to say the jury should immediately consider whether the defendant was insane. Insanity wasn't really a formal defence in law at this point, so it was a bit of a surprise. Before the jury could even start to murmur, the other judge on the bench chimed in to say that they didn't need a medical expert for this one, hint hint. The jury duly said, yes, King John II here was not guilty of treason on the basis of insanity. This spared the defendant an unpleasant sentence and passed him into the dubious care of the Victorian mental health system. He died in a Broadmoor lunatic asylum 46 years later. In 1838, another stalker, Captain Thomas Flower of the 15th Light Dragoons, sneaked into Victoria's rooms at Kensington just after she left. He also climbed into her private box at the opera and drunkenly declared his love for her. This was the downside of royal celebrity, and, however powerful Victoria was constitutionally, having a stalker it's a horrifying experience, and one that no woman especially should have to suffer. Unless they directly attacked her, she couldn't just snap her fingers and say off with their heads. As I've said before, the days of Tudor absolutist power were long gone. By contrast, Albert being a bit of a stick in the mud when it came to all-night parties must have seemed positively harmless. Flower was duly arrested and imprisoned. On release, he transferred his attention to two prostitutes, then back to his wife. Still, Victoria's trail of deluded stalkers kept coming. 
notably with the appearance in November 1839 of John Shockledge. At this point, poor Victoria was getting one serious stalker a year. Shockledge was arrested by palace guards trying to break in. He claimed he was actually God Almighty himself, and that kings and queens were his puppets. These stalkers were positively benign. Compared to the multiple assassination attempts, poor Victoria would suffer over the years though. Less dangerously, in May 1839, after a mere two years as queen, Victoria was hit with a surprise visit by the son of the Russian Tsar and a 70-strong entourage. A thoroughly put-out Victoria moaned to Lord Melbourne that she didn't expect this kind of surprise visit especially since it was the first major visit of her reign by a foreign dignitary. But the state rose to the occasion extremely well. In fact, Grand Duke Alexander Nikhailovich was rich, good-looking and very charismatic. When Victoria met him, she changed her tune about the visit, saying he was, quote, tall, with a fine figure, a pleasing open countenance, without being handsome, bright blue eyes, a short nose, and a pretty mouth, with a sweet smile, end quote. Duke Alexander was willing to throw around the bling, too. He bought trunks inlaid with diamonds, full of diamond rings that he gave out. He aimed to make a splash and Victoria was keen. Why not have some fun? It's good to be the Queen. For propriety's sake, he stayed at a fine hotel. But to the scandal of many, Victoria invited him to stay at Kensington with her for three nights. They went to the opera, each with a private box. Yet he sneaked into her box, and they closed the curtains for some time. He was known to whisper sweet nothings in her ear in French. He loved to dance. He was seen dancing with Victoria until three in the morning. Victoria was having her head and her heart turned, many felt. Her letter to Lord Melbourne seemed to say as much. Quote, The Queen danced the first and last dance with the Grand Duke, made him sit near her and tried to be very civil to him. I think we are great friends already and get on very well. I like him exceedingly, end quote. And yes, she does sometimes refer to herself in the third person, like any good Imperial Queen should. It seems likely that the feelings were growing on both sides. Naturally, speculation ran rampant, and both the British and Russian governments, and the Tsar, had to consider matters carefully. Unfortunately for the young potential couple, the British government and the Russian Tsar would never allow this match-up. It went against a huge number of strategic and political interests. The Grand Duke was swiftly recalled to the Tsar's court, before he and Victoria did something that Britain and Russia 
came to regret, witnesses and Victoria herself, were convinced the parting was heartfelt on both sides. Perhaps he wasn't so heartbroken, since in his diary he wrote the less than flattering, quote, She's very short, bad waist, uncomely face, but speaks charmingly, end quote. Balanced against that, it is a single line in a diary, and his behaviour to her appeared very genuine. It does make you wonder what effect this all had on future British-Russian court diplomacy. Victoria would later in life be somewhat anti-Russian. She spent four heartbroken days playing his favourite opera tune on repeat, which in practice required live music rather than hitting a button on the iPod. Her teenage depression didn't last long. She still had Dear Lord M acting as a father figure and distant outlet of unconscious sexual yearning. He played his role adroitly in those early years of her reign, ensuring she was captivated and listened to his advice without actually overstepping the mark and using her. In the back of his mind, Lord M must have wanted to be sure Victoria wasn't going to let power and indulgence go to her head. The last thing the country could cope with was another merry monarch a la George IV. Lord M knew Victoria had to marry, to have a number of steadying outlets, a confidant, an advisor, a best friend, a restraining influence, a sexual partner, and a father to heirs. That is a lot of weight to put on anyone's shoulders, even someone as brilliant as Albert. Lord M's influence over Victoria, was not the obsessive, absolutist type Sir John Conroy had craved. He actually seemed to have her best interests at heart, at least as he perceived them. Next time, we will look at Prince Albert in more detail and see how a royal courtship and proposal work in practice. We will also go deeper into Prince Albert, his childhood, his links to romanticism and why in he and Victoria was such a wonderful match. I hope you've enjoyed the last three years of podcasts. I certainly have, and I'm looking forward to the Victoria and Albert story over the next few episodes and many, many more years of podcasting to come. Take care and bye for now.